And I was thinking too of like, this comes I think from my Montessori background too, like thinking of those like big questions that all kids have is where do I fit into yeah. that? Not just kids, like as adults too. Yeah, yeah. Where do I fit into this, our collective story of anti-racism? And that was so important for me that the reader be able to like put themselves into the story anywhere and be able to like see themselves any time yeah. of history in the future like now and regardless like I wanted like white students black students and did like I wanted everybody to be able to to put themselves into it I'm Leila Saad and my life is driven by one burning question how can I become a good ancestor How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing change makers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Tiffany Jewell is a Black biracial writer, anti-racist educator and consultant, and mama. She's in her 15th year as a Montessori educator and nearing two decades of work in schools with young folks, families, and educators. Tiffany loves to bake bread, build Legos with her eight-year-old and four-year-old, and loves watching British detective shows. She spends a lot of time dreaming up how she can dismantle white supremacy and reimagining liberatory schools. In January 2020, Tiffany published her first book. This book is anti racist 20 lessons on how to wake up, take action, and do the work. Okay, hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Good Ancestor Podcast. I am here with Tiffany Jewell, <laughs> author of This Book is Anti Racist. Actually, this book sits right here next to me on my shelf. And my daughter saw it the other day and she's like, that's a cool title. (laughs) And I said, and it's for kids as well. She's very, very impressed. So welcome, Tiffany. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so honored to be speaking with you right now and so excited. And then to see you matching the cover of the book is just like... Yes, I want it to be as colorful and sparkly as possible because this book, which was illustrated by Aurelia Durand, is a beautiful book. It's also full of amazing information, which we are going to talk about in this conversation, but it's just beautifully illustrated and I wanted to match it with my colors. So that's what I'm doing today. So we're going to open with our opening question to get us set and then we'll dive in. All right. So tell me, Tiffany, who are some of the ancestors living or transitioned familial or societal who have influenced you on your journey? And I'm really, I'm really (laughs) curious about this question with you because I read the book and I'm like, there is so much, so many sources seem to be coming in here. I know. There are so many ancestors. And what I realize is I'm like, I'm still discovering who they all are. And so like immediately I think of my grandparents, my Nana is still alive. She's like, she's the same age as the Queen of England. Oh, wow. (laughs) 93, I think. And so my Nana and my Pep-Up, who are from my mom's side of the family, and then my ancestors and my dad's side of the family, I don't 
really know. Mm-hmm. And so I think of like how I, they're like my known ancestors who are familial and then the, the unknown ancestors and it's the, the ones that I don't know who like keep coming back to me and like whispering to me, like, know us more. Yeah. I'm trying. And then there's like the teaching ancestors. So Maria Montessori, I'm a Montessori educator and she was around over a hundred, I think 150 years ago at this point. And just really laid the groundwork for all my aha moments as an educator. Mm. And then Enid Lee, who is based in Canada, who wrote the book Letters to Marsha in the 1980s, which is a book for anti-racist education. And I always look at her as kind of like the foundation of the work we do as anti-racist educators. Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, who wrote Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And Dr. Barbara J. Love, who is more local to where I am in Massachusetts. She wrote an article or small essay, a piece of work called Developing a Liberatory Consciousness. Mm. I feel so blessed I was able to work with her a couple of times. Um, when I tried to take, try to get my master's, which was not something that worked out for me, but then she came back into my life through another like person and was able to do some work and just her framework for looking at the world as like this cyclical awakening and processing Mm. just Mm. like really has, it's kind of everything I do comes back to her. So she's like one of the those great living ancestors who I like keep nodding to. And I'm so like thankful that she came into my life when she did. And then like going with the old, like great Harriet Tubman. (laughs) Like when I was a kid, I was like obsessed with her. What was it about her? I grew up up in central New York in in Syracuse, New York, and she lived in Auburn, which was like a couple towns over. And so I was always like fascinated by like abolitionists and the Underground Railroad. Mm. And as a kid, I was like, that just makes sense. But with Harriet Tubman, there weren't like, I don't remember a lot of children's books about her. So I remember reading kind of more adult biographies about her and she was on a postage stamp and I was a stamp collector as a kid so I remember like writing an essay about her and winning an award so I just was like she's amazing and everybody needs to know about her and she's still like yeah it's like she's always there and then Malcolm X his work came into my life when I was in college and just really helped helped me focus more in the direction that I was headed in. Mm. Wow, that's amazing. So you've talked about your familial, (laughs) yeah, you know, your familial ancestors. So you're a black biracial woman. Your Mm -hmm. mother is white and your father is black and you grew up with your mother. And I would love to talk about a little bit about that experience of being black biracial, growing up in a sort of not having the primary parent with you being reflective of, blackness and what yeah. that that was like but i'm thinking about how that influence is still there you know you said you're not that connected with your father's side mm-hmm. but that sort of yearning for identifying with that side of yourself would you say that's like a really driving part of your work yes it is yeah. and, you know i think with my mother's side there are also like 
I'm a first generation American on her side. So she immigrated from England when she was four. And so, but also like the white household I grew up in wasn't a typical American household. Right. Like we had tea and we had Cadbury chocolate all the time. Right. Just like very crumpets. British crumpets, <laughs> shepherds. I don't think we did crumpets, but we did shepherd's pie. We had curry, you know, curry with raisins in it, which is very different from like the curry you could get. Like we never had Chinese food or other stuff. Right. And then also grew up in like my Nana went to the very much World War II. So we had like spam and corned beef, like all of those tinned things. And then when I was five, my parents were never married and our dad lived in like the other street and me see my grandma and my uncles. And then when he, I was about five, he got in a car accident because he was driving drunk. And I remember even telling my kindergarten teacher, like my dad's in a coma now. And my teacher just like walking, like just being like, okay. And then like moving on. But I'm like, you know, now as a teacher, I'm like, why didn't she pause for a moment. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of those moments where you're just like, okay. Yeah. Um, And kind of when he came out of the coma, his memory was shifted. Like he didn't Mm. really remember our names and, and then his family was like taking care of him. And then they all moved to Atlanta. And so they removed themselves from our lives Mm. and we would get a phone call every now and then, but he didn't sound like my dad. And so right. that just kind of like fizzled right. out more. And so I would still see his brother sometimes, my uncle, or, or not even my uncle, but my my aunt and her son. But yeah. then as we got just all got older like that, like our parents didn't keep up with that. And we were too young. Separated. Right, right, yeah. right, right. So now like as an adult, I'm like, okay. And my son who's eight is now like, don't you want to go see your dad? And I'm like, we don't know where he is. Mm. Like his sister doesn't know. He's a homeless Vietnam vet right now. Mm. So, you know, those things and there's a lot of loss on that side. Right. And then like a lot of like picking up and trying to put it all back together. Together. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I was listening to Girl Trek had a an interview recently on a Facebook broadcast with Angela Davis and Nikki Giovanni. And one of the opening questions that they asked them both was to say, who were they the daughter of? It's this campaign that they have called Daughter Of. Yeah. And so they'd say something like, so for me, it would be, I'm Layla, the daughter of Hasne who is the daughter of Aisha and so on as far back as you can go. And I think it was Angela Davis who kind of said her name, I think her parents' name, sorry, her mother's name, maybe her grandmother's name and said, that's it. That's as far back as I can go. And that's as far back as I need to go for me. Mm. And so when we talk about this idea of being a good ancestor, I think it's really important to honor the fact that that looks so different for so many of us, depending on both our individual family histories and our personal collective racial histories. You know, I think about myself as a first generation Brit, my parents are East African, though they have very strong familial ties. I didn't grow up with my grandparents. I know them. And actually my my maternal grandmother is somebody all of them have passed. All my grandparents have passed, but my maternal grandmother is someone who comes to me a lot 
in dreams, you know, just all the time. Yeah. Because of the distance, just geographically, the relationship that my kids have with my parents. The relationship my kids have with my parents is my parents are also their parents. They're there right now at my parents' house right now. And they are there every day, especially during this quarantine. And it's not quarantine. They're there once a week at the weekend. But right now they're there every single day as support for me, right? I think for my kids, they could not imagine not seeing their grandparents. For me, I've had times when I did and times when I didn't, you know? And it looks so different for each one of us. And, And then the story that we make around that is so important as well because yeah. it can influence us in ways that are either very healing or yep. that can leave a big hole yep. side. Yeah. Yeah. And I do feel like very fortunate that my British grandparents were the what like they helped raise us. Like we yeah. were at their house every day after school and every day in the summertime and and like thankful to have that. But yeah. Yeah. And they yeah. like we don't know the names, you know, like where right. did my last name come from? Right. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit. So this is a question I was asking earlier about, and then we will get onto your book, but I would love to know from your experience as a light skinned black, black biracial woman, girl first, and then woman growing up in, in an environment with white, a white mother, white grandparents. Yeah. How did you understand yourself racially in your family and then in the world? Yeah. So I have a twin sister, which was a great like growing up experience. So I thankfully always had somebody who looked like me reflected. Okay. Reflected yeah. me like yes. right away. Right. And so, you know, she has blue eyes and I have brown eyes, but everything else about us is very similar. And so we always had that. And then we grew up in a very racially diverse neighborhood. And oh. it was Everyone was like economically pretty much the same, but we had Irish immigrants, we had uh, Vietnamese immigrants, we had black folks, white folks, like indigenous folks, all like within two blocks. Mm. And so I was able to like see myself or people like me within our immediate block. And then my elementary school was probably 85 to 90% black students. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It was our neighborhood school and it was the same elementary school that my mom and her siblings went to. So I was able to see that reflection everywhere. Yeah. And I also like remember like remarks people would make to my mom, like, oh, you keep those girls so neat and clean. And that would be like comments from other white folks. Parents, right, right. Parents, um, people in the grocery store, you're like, you don't even know us. And my mom, like, I don't even remember what she would say, but then would maybe like when we'd walk away, would mutter like, well, why wouldn't you be me? You know, like, right. And I do like also remember like sometimes the school system labeled my sister and I as white and uh, with our light skin, we got a lot of advantages that other kids didn't. And mm. I remember sometimes I felt like my mom was the only one who was like, you are black. You are not white. You are black children. And she braided our hair, like she took care of us in a way that I really like culturally appreciate. Yeah. Um, and it was also, we were growing up in this very like white household and elementary school felt okay. But in the middle school, it's like, 
there are a lot more white kids in our school. And that became a time where I was like, I don't really know who I'm supposed to be right now. I don't know where to fit in. And I ask this because I know this is a question that I get, and I'm a black woman, but I know a lot of black indigenous people get this color. What are you? Where are you from? Yeah. What are you really? Yeah. Yeah. And so did you find as somebody, and again, I ask this also because my niece and my nephew are biracial. You wouldn't necessarily know that they're biracial unless you saw their mother, but they are biracial. And I often think about how they will see themselves and how the world will see them. And so this is a conversation that's very meaningful to me. I think it's so important to know who you are, but when you're young, everybody's trying to define you for themselves, right? Define you what makes them most comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, should I bring her on or do I like cast her aside? Like I do Right. that. What are you question? Yeah. It's like, it's one of those constants in my life. Yeah. Like I remember it from when I was younger and then it really was like kind of when I got out of like the comfort zone of, of home and yeah. having my sister. Cause you know, if there's two of you like, right. Are like, oh, okay. You're a thing. Right. Um, <laughs> like, right. <laughs> so it was like in college especially like after college where I got that question all the time. Like, right. what are you? What are you? And, right. and, and working out in the world. And, and it was always white folks asking the question. Mm. Um, black folks don't need to ask that question. Like black folks know. Right. <laughs> Tell me. Right. And, and what do you think? I mean, I, I, I mean, yeah. I know why it's people who are white who ask that question. What do you think it is? Yeah. Where, what is it that, yeah. So it wasn't until I think it was like 22 and a friend um, had a bunch of us over and he was a, a white guy. Like we all worked at a restaurant together and his dad came over and he was like, oh, oh, my dad's so good at like playing this game. Dad, dad, guess what she is. And I was like, oh, oh, wow. What? And I was, it was like one of those moments I was like, I thought we were friends. And like yeah. the other like friends we had, there was like an Iranian woman, there was a, a Vietnamese woman. I was like, yeah. It felt like we were like a global group of people. And it was at that moment I was like, oh, like one, like figuring out like somebody's race is a game because the, at that moment I felt like I wasn't normal. I was definitely like an other. Yeah. And it was one of those moments where I was like, all right, we're not going to be friends anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, we don't need this. And it like that question just keeps coming up because people like want to be able to define whether I'm like, somebody to like keep close or to like cast aside or is she going to be that bridge for us? Oh. Um, but, but to what community right. is she the right. bridge for? Right. You know, like I had a roommate when I was in my twenties and she and I looked very similar and she was Filipina. Her mom was Filipino and her dad was white. And then me and me both had freckles. And whenever we went out, people always assumed we were like sisters. Mm. Because they they couldn't place us right anyway right but they needed to why can't you just let them know us for who we are right that thing that you just said about is she going to be the bridge that just felt very oh because know. you know it's very much like you're not your own whole person you're a person that we can use for what makes yeah. sense for us and that's yeah. what white supremacy does right yeah. is how can this center me? How can this serve me? How can this help me? 
and you're a whole human being. So I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, well, there was that time then where I was like, I can be a bridge between the two, you know, like taking on all of like what white supremacy put onto me. And I was like, I can do this and I can like work with white folks and I can work with black folks and I can like be the savior. Mm. And then I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, and it was exhausting. Well, like that's that. what I want. I want to ask you about this. because <laughs> I'm really glad you took us here because I think, you know, as someone who is sort of straddling both identities or has lived in, in both worlds and holds both inside of yourself as a whole human being, maybe that's my job. Maybe that's what I'm here to do. Yeah. Maybe that's why I'm who I am, but you're holding so much. And you're having to be that for everybody. How did you come to the realization that, no, this isn't what I'm here to do or be? (laughs) It took several iterations. So the first time when I was like, I'm going to be that bridge was in college. And I was like the only woman of color in many of my college classes. And there was one, I remember sitting across the aisle from him. And there was this white guy who had this big, like gold watch. And I, he was always like, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Oh, that guy. Okay. (laughs) The devil's Um, agent. Yes. Okay. (laughs) And it was in like a religion class. And like, I just was kind of like, all right, I can be this bridge. And just like talking with him was so exhausting that I was like, I don't have to do this actually. Like he has his own learning to do. And I, moved from like, I thought I was going to like be a high school English teacher. And then I was like, I want to work with little kids. Mm. (laughs) So then like I was started taking classes to work with younger kids and it was working with them. I was like, I get to be my whole self every day and I get to like be joyful and I get to be silly and goofy. And so that was like one of those moments where I was like, I don't have to like be here for all of the white male adults. Right. And then just like the other time was at the work, like the school that I currently work at, this is my 15th year there. Like I I thought I was going to be there for like two years. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, okay. For a while I was like, I'm going to be the one who brings racial justice to this school. You know, I can like bridge between the students of color and the white teachers. And then I was like, this isn't my work. (laughs) Mm. I can't do this alone. And that took years to figure yeah. that out. And it was a anti-racist, or it was a Montessori for Social Justice conference. And we all had an anti-racist training that maybe seven of us from our school went to. And everyone got like the same language. And it, I was like, okay, wait, it doesn't have to be me. Like it can be all of us right. doing this work right. together. And it was like a big shift for me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. So that's how you got into being a teacher and you've been working at this school for 15 years, which is incredible. Congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. Tell us a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about your work as a teacher before we go into your book. So you work at a Montessori school. For those of us not familiar, me, I know that they exist. I know we have one here in Qatar. They are worldwide. How are Montessori schools different to, I guess, regular schools? Yeah, uh, non-Montessori schools. And what attracted you to working in in that kind of a school? Yeah. Montessori schools started in Maria Montessori, a physician started in Italy and she was kind of charged with working with students that nobody else wanted to work with. And these were students who were living in 
housing communities whose parents worked all the time. They were undernourished. Yeah. And uh, kind of what she was did was she observed the students and she observed like, oh, well, they're not learning to read because they're hungry. And so she started creating kind of works and things to help children take care of themselves and yeah. become autonomous in their lives. And so I always think of like going back to that as the root of Montessori is our goal is to really empower children to be able to advocate for themselves and to take care of themselves so they can become like whole people and not Mm. have to rely every moment on the adults in their lives for like deciding what they're going to learn and what they're going to eat and when they're going to eat. And I think like there are times when Montessori educators can do this really well and there are times when, when they don't. And my friend Amelia always says, like, Montessori has the ability to liberate and heal the child, but it's the ability. Like, we look at it, the ability is there, but how are we going to use this philosophy and pedagogy? Amazing. And what drew you specifically to working in a Montessori Mm. school? I kind of stumbled on it by happenstance. Like I was living in Philadelphia and moved to Massachusetts and needed a job. In Philadelphia, I worked in an early child care center with young toddlers and and toddlers. Like my biggest accomplishment to date as a teacher is like potty training a class of 11 boys. Oh my God. (laughs) Potty training my own two kids is... It's way harder, actually. Really? (laughs) Really? Your own children is so Oh my gosh. That was also the first time I was in a school setting where it was all Black women. And it was so awesome and beautiful. There and then the, my friend Mayumi, who is from Japan. So all women of color were in the school, running the school, guiding children. Wow. It was so beautiful. And then I moved to Massachusetts and I had this like culture shock because I was like, oh, oh um, yeah. <laughs> all the children are white, all the teachers are white. Like, what is this? But I um, applied to be an aftercare teacher because I worked, I wanted to work with children, but I was also working in a cafe. And then they just kind of like, needed a sub for a classroom. Mm. A three, I started working in the three to six-year-old classroom. And I loved how children were using glass pitchers to pour water for themselves to yeah. drink. Yeah. And everything was child-sized. And when the teachers wanted to talk to the children, they brought their bodies down to the floor to, yeah. to, to look in their eyes. And it was the philosophy, like I was just drawing, I was like, oh, children are really honored and they're seen and they get to make decisions and how the classroom is run. So I was really drawn to that. Yeah. And then there was an opening in the elementary classroom and I like the teacher and I like elementary age students. So I was like, can I try this? And the principal or the head of school was like, no. And then one of the parents like advocated for me. And, oh, wow. Because um, yeah. we were like whispering about it. And elementary is like where I stayed. I love wow. working with six to nine-year-olds. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. I love that. In Montessori schools, do you think it's more, I don't know if it's easy or there's more ability to be able to talk about things like anti-racism and racial justice and social justice? Is it more open for that? So my dream is yes. My dream okay. answer is yes. Um, and I think 
in my classroom, it was very easy. And I think in some classrooms it is and others, it was really hard mm. at the elementary level. There's something called the five great lessons. Mm. And so you start with the, the birth of the earth and it's all like, it's looked at through the lens of science. And mm. so Maria Montessori, even though she was Catholic, she was also very scientific, which is a cool like dichotomy in a, in a person too. And so we look at the science of that and then we look at the coming of life. And so looking at from very first creatures to the next story is the coming of humans. And then there's the story of communication, the story of numbers. Wow. Yeah. And I always thought like kind of the next story would be the story of community and justice. Yeah. Like just kind of like all keep Keeping, it yes, going. upon each other. Right. 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 And like children are always like, who am I? What came before me? What comes next? We have this saying in Montessori, like young folks, like we're trying to figure out our cosmic task, like what our purpose in life is. And children can't figure that out if they don't see themselves in it. And so for me, it's like the story of community and justice. We can all see ourselves in that story somewhere. Yeah. And that's where like we started telling the story in our classroom that turned into like this big history of anti-racism and another of economic justice and, and really moving into like story of empowerment. Yeah. Which is really fun. That's beautiful. That's yeah. beautiful. All right. Well, I feel like that's really set us up well to, <laughs> yes. to talk about this book is anti-racist. This book came out just before my book, I think. Your book came yes. out, was it 7th of January? Something like that? Yep. Yep. And mine came out on the 28th of January. So we were like orbiting around one another. Yeah. We yeah. just missed each other in, was it Philadelphia? Yes, at the a, Library Association. By a day. Yep. I think yeah. you, I came in and then I had to leave because I was on to my book tour and you were yep. just coming in behind me. I was like, no, I know. really want to meet her. <laughs> I know. And you've met like in DC, you were with Christine Platt, yes. who's one of my friends and yes. I was with Jamia Wilson yes. in Philadelphia. And I was just like, there's all these things right. in our way. So many connections, <laughs> so many amazing women. But we're here to have this amazing conversation. <laughs> so this book is anti-racist, 20 lessons on how to wake up, take action and do the work. What made you write this book? And it's your debut book. So congratulations. Yeah. It's done Thank really you. well. It's, it's been amazing to see how well it's done. It was really uh, fun to write. I'd never intended to be an author. And I was like, in fact, told by like my teachers, they never liked my papers. My college professors gave me bad grades. Wow. Yeah. And my sister, my sister was the one who she had like a, her degree is in magazine journalism. Okay. So I was like, she's going to be the writer. She's the writer. Okay. Yeah. And, and I got an email from an editor from Quarto, Katie Flint, who also edits Jimmy Wilson's books. Mm. And she was like, have you ever thought about writing children's books? And I thought it was a joke, but I emailed her back anyway. And we started talking and just kind of from our conversation, she was like, I would love to help you write a story or not a story, a book about anti-racism for young folks. There's nothing like it. We need it. And she's, she's a white woman in England. I was kind of like, I don't know about this. Are you sure? And she gave me like complete control over the book and paired me with Aurelia, which is just like amazing. I will say, because I read the entire book, 
and I feel this way about my book as well, because I was given that same freedom to just <sighs> use my own voice. Yeah. My yeah. editor was also a white woman <laughs> and she just let me just do my own thing. You know? yeah. So what I want to say is, as I read your book, all I heard was your voice. That was it. There was no watering down. There was no talking down. There was no making it whatever it would have to be to be acceptable or palatable to whiteness. And I'm really glad that you got that opportunity because unfortunately the publishing world is extremely white and many Black, Indigenous people of color don't get to use their voice in that way or have editors who will microaggress them or have like, I've heard Writers say, you know, when they've used AAV, African-American vernacular English in their books, they've been asked by their white editor, maybe you should have a glossary in your book, you know, so that white people understand what you're saying and so on and so forth, right? (laughs) 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 I'm really grateful that you got the chance to just fully write this book. Yeah, me too. And there are moments too where... Like, I think her boss would question things. And so she would just come back and she's like, here's what I'm going to say. Is there anything else you want me to? And I'd be like, no, that's great. Thank you. She um, would protect you, protect your voice, really advocate for you to, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I feel very lucky. Yeah. I know not everybody gets that. No, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, you get approached, you, you start writing this book. Who were you writing it for? the first person that came to mind was like me when I was nine years old and I was like, man, like nine-year-old Tiffany really needed this book. Cause I had yeah. a very like overtly racist teacher and like I could identify it, but I didn't have the words to talk about it and I didn't know what to do next. Yeah. And so nine-year-old me. And then I thought of my, all of my students, I'm yeah. remembering like what they said. I just like, especially remembering there's one student who now, also works as an aftercare teacher at our school. Oh, wow. So she's now my four-year-old's teacher and he That's loves amazing. her. I remember her mom saying like, after you did your anti-racism work, she got on the phone with, with her aunt and she was talking about how all of these doors were opening up for people. And she never knew that. But one of those moments I was like, so I'm writing this book for my students, but also all the students I never got to have. Mm-hmm. And all of the students who had racist teachers like me and for my own son, like my, I'm raising two white boys. And I'm like, I want them to read a book and know history. And I want them to know how to stand up. And so I just like wrote it for all the kids I could possibly think of. Um, But it really was like nine-year-old me who like, kept coming in and being like, this is what I need from you right now. And well, then 14-year-old me too. Yeah. Like she too. <laughs> what I will say about this book though is, I mean, as an adult, as a 36-year-old woman, I got so much from this book. And I, I know it. you wrote it for your inner nine-year-old, your inner 14-year-old, your kids, your students. But I mean... <laughs> A lot of adults need to read this book. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really appreciated it. It's full of not only just information, but glossaries, activities that I found very mm-hmm. helpful just for myself. Um, very, very helpful. So one of the uh, sections you talk about understanding our identities and understanding the places in which we have privilege and the places in which we don't. 
and there were some activities around that that I found helpful. But what I also really mm-hmm. like, Tiffany, that is this thread throughout the book is this understanding of who the individual is, the reader. Who mm-hmm. are you? What is your identity? What is your personal history? What is your personal vision? And what is ours? Like, what is our collective history? Mm-hmm. What is our collective identity? And I found that really amazing. I love that you did that because I think it helps people to not just like intake information as if they're reading a history lesson, but actually seeing themselves in the story, seeing themselves as part of the story and therefore being empowered to do something from that space. Was that really important for you? I'm I'm sure it was because you knew you were talking to young people that this information can be very overwhelming. And if you don't see yourself in it, it's kind of like, so what do I do with it? Yeah. And I was thinking too of like, this comes, I think, from my Montessori background too, like thinking of those like big questions that all kids have is where do I fit into that? Not just kids, like as adults too. Yeah, yeah. Where do I fit into this, our collective story of anti-racism? And that was so important for me that the reader be able to like put themselves into the story anywhere and be able to like see themselves any time of history in the future like now and regardless like I wanted like white students black students and like I wanted everybody to be able to to put themselves into it Mm, yeah that's happening I mean I think you definitely achieve that with this book for sure because so with me and white, so with my book, Me and White Supremacy, the next thing that I'm working on is the is the Young Readers edition. Oh, no, I'm so excited about that. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I actually find this more stressful than writing the adult version because I don't work with children, right? Yeah. So I don't, I'm like, what, how much is too much to share? Like, what will they understand? And I, at the same time, I don't want to water down the work. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I was reading through your book, what really struck me was this reminder that children are actually very smart. <laughs> okay. Yeah. They um, really are. <laughs> they're able to understand a lot that they shouldn't be taken for granted in what they can understand. Yeah. As I was reading your book, I was thinking about how this is the book that the adults who are now reading me in white supremacy, I wish that they had this book, your mm. book, because they wouldn't necessarily need in white supremacy if they'd had at a younger age yeah. the opportunity to have these conversations and to build this ability to self-reflect and, and think critically. I have a, a masterclass on parenting and white supremacy that's for parents who have white privilege. And one of the things I say in that masterclass is when you think about talking to your white kids about anti-racism, you're afraid because you're seeing yourself in them and you know that you aren't equipped yeah. And you're you're projecting your own fears, right? Because yeah. you're, you're not equipped as the adult. How are they going to be able to handle it? But yeah. actually, they are better able to handle yeah. it yeah. than you they are. Can you talk it. to us about that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think in like parenting, like I don't know what it's like to be a white boy in, right. the, in the world. Right. And so I think like working with kids, I, the thing that I realized early on, I was like, I have to act and like, be what they want me to be. And I was like, oh wait, children just want the truth. They want like authenticity. They can like read through all of the like fakeness. I'm thinking about my kids and the things that they say to me. You're absolutely right. They know know. and I'm BSing them. Like they know immediately. They know. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) Even like my four-year-old the other day at the table, he was like, looked at his papa and he's like, am I white? (laughs) 
And his brother was like, yeah, we're white. <laughs> just like, so and just they, clarifying. They, just needed to. Yeah, I know. And I, I was talking about something and I was like, white guys or yeah. like, you know, rolling my eyes or something. And, but they're so like, just like that language and giving them just the ability to, to understand, like they don't have all of the weight of history on us. And if we can share the truth with them, then they're like, okay, these are the facts. Right. Right. And I think because they're in that age of learning, questioning, just real openness, they're very open and they're not set as we are as adults in their identity of this is who I am. And if I act in any other way other than this, then I'm a bad person or these are bad thoughts to have, or they are really, really open. And so like when I think about adults who have white privilege, who come into work such as me and white supremacy or or work such as the, uh, the work that you do, there's a lot of fragility and defensiveness that comes up because it's very confronting against the yeah. reality of how they know themselves. Yeah. Whereas kids don't have that as much. Yeah. Because they're still forming every single day. Yeah. Like yeah. usually their tears are because they're like actually hurt inside right. and they're not trying to manipulate a situation. No, right, um, right. That yeah. is, yeah, genuine. Not that adult sadness isn't, but I, as to what you were saying, that, <laughs> yeah. that yeah. So I was reading it. I was like, I bet. I was like, I bet this is easy for her to write. She works with kids all the time. You know, I was like, I have no idea how to talk to kids, and I think that's my edge because I know how to talk to my kids who are black. I don't know how to talk to white kids who have white privilege, and I want to be able to give them the information, and I don't want to scare them, but I also want to give them the facts. And I think it's it's this dance that we have to, to yeah. do. But I think resilience has to be built at a young age as well. Yeah. And yeah. there's one thing, my friend, Britt Hawthorne, who's an anti-racist educator, she yeah. and I like often talk about when we're presenting that we will present always to the Black women in the room. Mm. And we will present the work we're doing is always for Black women, Indigenous women, people of color. Yeah. And even in writing this book, like that was, I was like, I'm writing this book for black biracial Tiffany, who was called so many different things as a kid and my white sons will understand it. Yeah. But who am I going to center? Who am I centering? This? Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. And that, I think that's really, really powerful. I think that was there definitely for me with my book in that I knew I was writing it to white people, Yeah, but I wanted, if a black person reads this, they yeah. feel... Yeah. That I spoke the truth of what we experienced. Yeah. And you yeah. absolutely did. Like Thank reading you. it, I'm like, oh, yes. And yeah. I keep like saying to my husband, like, hey, like, read this part. I'm like, let's talk about this. <laughs> Something that I love that you did in the book as well is that you you purposely chose to use the word or the term global majority when yeah. referring to Black, Indigenous, people of color. You do use that term as well, BIPOC. Yeah that you use the word global majority. I really love that you did that. I think words are important. I think when we use words like minority or marginalized or it perpetuates a reality that isn't true. Yeah. 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 With children too, like whenever I'm working with teachers and my question for myself is always like, am I empowering them or disempowering? Mm. And if I'm disempowering, then I'm doing this wrong like I'm causing harm yeah and so 
how can we give information and empower yeah. facts and truth? Yeah. And the truth is like the global, we are the global majority. That is a term that came to me by way of Dr. Barbara J. Love too. Mm. Like she's, and it was somebody who had worked with her, who I worked with and shared it. And then like, it's the only word now. Like, why would we ever say minorities? Like, right, and right. I, anytime anybody uses minorities, I'm like, nope. <laughs> like, no. And um, I know in the UK, I mean, they don't use BIPOC or Black Indigenous people of color. They use BAME or BAME, yeah. which is Black Asian Minority Ethnic, which yeah. is not a term that I feel comfortable with yeah. either. I think we are, like you said, the global majority, black yeah. brown people, indigenous people, we are the global majority. Yeah. And I think it's that it's again, subverting white supremacy by telling the truth instead of yeah. telling the truth that white supremacy is trying to convince us yeah. of, which is that white people yeah. are the majority and are the more superior race. Right. Yeah. So I think that was really important. I, I love that you did that. You also talked about and I wrote this today because I was getting excited for a conversation. And I said, one of the things that I love about Tiffany's mm-hmm. book is that she uses, shares examples and stories from all around the world to highlight the fact that white supremacy is not a US centric or a US only phenomenon. It is a global <laughs> phenomenon and anti-blackness is a global phenomenon. I know that you used examples from the UK, from mm-hmm. Australia and New Zealand, from European countries, and from countries that kind of are where white supremacy is the dominant paradigm. Yeah. But I would also say, you know, I get comments or remarks from people who are in African countries, in Asian countries where white people are not ruling, right? But the effects, the after effects of colonization still very much inform the way people think and live. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, who has power? It's the people with lighter skin. Right. What are the cultural holidays that we celebrate? What are the foods that we eat? Right. Like, it's so and what is attractive, insane. right? So yep. curly hair, let's relax it. You know, darker yep. skin, let's bleach it, right? Yep. White people don't even have to be present for those white supremacist paradigms to be present. But I, I think this is so, so important. We were doing um, a live version of Good Ancestor podcast recently and in our final one where I had all our speakers come back and we were having a conversation and I said to the audience, you can ask some questions in the Q&A box. I must have gotten three questions that started off that said, I'm a white British woman. How can I address, you know, racism in our country? You know, very much with the thinking that this is a US thing. It's not really present here. It's sort of, it is here, but it's not really here. Yeah. Right. And that a lot of that white exceptionalism happens countrywide. I'm really curious, why was it important for you as someone who is American? Why was it important for you to include examples in the book that were global? Yeah. So I think, again, like thinking of all those like students around the world and I'm like, one, I want everyone to understand racism is a global issue. Like colonization happens all around the globe. My son's principal, she said something like Halloween is one of those holidays that we can't escape thanks to the dominant culture. And she'll say things like that. But for me, I'm like, this is our inescapable truth. Like the dominant culture and colonization has just shaped everything. And I was working with a school 
And their, one of their teachers was from France and we were doing all this work in anti-bias, anti-racist education. And, and after a whole day together, she came up to me and she goes, well, it's just not like this in France. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? And she was like, it's such an American thing, like apple pie. And I was like, well, apples didn't yeah. come from America. Yeah. And like, <laughs> As a black Muslim woman, I just want to say to that lady, I think she, she needs to take a deeper look at her country. I know. Yeah. I d- yeah. And yeah. I was like, well, it's a global issue, but right. that is so ingrained. Like, oh, it's, it's an American issue. And maybe like right now it is at the forefront because we have a very like racist president, but it's a part of who we are is like globally for Global. so right. long. Right. Ugh. Right. Right. I really appreciated that because I, as somebody who, sits at different intersections. This is something that I talk mm-hmm. about and I'll often say, I'm because people sometimes think, well, you're just American. I'm like, first of all, I'm not. <laughs> not even. <right? laughs> you're like, thank I'm, you. I'm not, right, not. Um, yeah. I am speaking about this from a global perspective. I'm also talking about this from the way that white supremacy has shaped the world and the way it shapes our consciousness globally mm-hmm. as well. I'm not, I don't go into talking about politics or policies or the specifics of institutions because I don't have experience there. I don't have lived experience there. I don't have worked experience there. But it's white supremacy operates at these multiple layers, each of which needs to be examined. Um, And something that you say in the book, which I very much believe is, you know, you talk about how the fact that systems are made up of people. And so in order to change the systems, the people have to change. The systems don't change if the people don't change. Yeah, you say yeah. the same thing in your yeah. practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's so nice it's true. to see it reflected, right? Yeah. It's so important to see it reflected because people yeah. think, well, as long as the president goes and we get a new president or this particular law changes, yeah. then it's fixed and it's not. It's yeah, not. it's not because we're just like complicit with it. Yeah. Yes. I always think too, like I love working with children and I work with in a a lot of like children who come from some affluence too. Yeah. And so my goal is always like, if I can get them to in, see you're infiltrating. in me, right. <laughs> it's like the secret weapon. Yes. And I've had great conversations with white children about privilege and power that they take back to the dinner table and really wanting like that to be how we start to dismantle this like yeah. system too. Cause as a parent, I don't want to disappoint my children. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Well, um, you know, speaking of sort of superpowers, you talk about superpowers <laughs> in the book and you share two of your superpowers, which I really love. One was <laughs> in interrupting and one was dancing. Talk to us about those. Why was it important for you to include those? What do you want the readers to get from that? Yeah, that came from... So kind of with my students in the middle of doing like the history of racism and anti-racism, we would take breaks from the history and we would do community building. And one time I was like, what is your superpower? But as we're like playing in the playground and they're like flying and I'm like, but don't hurt yourself, you know? (laughs) And I was like, mine is interrupting. And it like, I had just come out of a meeting with our head of school around that time who told me I need to, to be quieter at meetings because I was always standing up and being like, no. Right. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I am a fast processor. I think quickly. And so sometimes I'll just interrupt somebody. And it's easier for me to do that than somebody else because I have the words right on the tip of my tongue. And um, 
but I've shared this with my son too. And I'm like, you have to be mindful of who you're interrupting, but being able to like process what's happening and stop it before it gets worse can be a really powerful tool to have in your tool belt. And with dancing, like there are times, and this is like being in quarantine or self-distancing with my children. Like we're like, let's just turn up the music because we were just all arguing and it just helps us like reconnect with our bodies and what's around us and to like, be moved by a sensation that is externally instead of yeah inside, but coming move, from inside yeah and move that energy around right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. What, what I loved about you sharing about interrupting was that it it was this great reminder that we as people and especially you're talking to young people but all people really when we think about I'm powerless what can I do what can I say I don't have a platform I don't have political power I don't have position I have mm. the power to interrupt though yeah. Have the power when something happens, right? For me to say yeah. something or jump in yeah. or cut off or call out or yeah. that I can do. And I felt that that was really important because people who are sitting at all different kinds of locations of identity and privilege and positions are reading your work, right? And so mm-hmm. it's important for people not to think, oh, this is great. This is really, really important, but I'm not the one to do it because I don't have X, Y, Z abilities. Yeah. Anybody can do it. Right. And I think of my, um, my eight-year-old, he's pretty like introverted. Yeah. And I think one of his superpowers is the ability to observe. Like he will like kind of notice everything before he dives into a situation, which is like the opposite of me right away. But that Mm. power then like turns into noticing like there are four cop cars across the street and like being able to like notice how many police there are and what they're doing and listening and that is such a like powerful tool too and when you combine them like he and I could be like an amazing super doer yeah (laughs) and and also that this the fact that we are all different every single human being is different some of us are more this some of us are more that there's different ways that we're going to be approaching the, the work and I know you talk about this in the book, right? That the way that we show up in anti-racism work will grow and evolve with us. But it really is about, you know, finding who you are in this work and the way yeah. that you're uniquely going to, to do this work. I think that's really important because I think when we're trying to do it like somebody else, like, oh, I have to go do this or I have to do that. I think it's a huge disservice to what yeah. you can offer, right? So using the example yeah. of your son, if he felt like, well, I have to be like mom, Right. And his very nature is observation and then making very astute observations and being able to move from that place. We miss out on that. Yeah. And it is like when you're working with other people, like you can't all have the same superpowers. (laughs) Nothing will get done. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Actually, I want to ask you this and then I'm going to talk about that. So you talked about earlier you wrote this book for nine-year-old you and you had a teacher in your school who's very racist. You share a story and I'm wondering if you can share it with us about an incident where she was extremely racist to a black boy who was in your Mm -hmm. class. And you share how you wish, if you'd known, you wish you would have done this and you would have done that. If only you'd known that you could could have done that. But of course you were nine years old and she was an adult. The power structures are what they are, right? Yeah. Um, but that is, first of all, it was 
awful reading what happened in that moment. Like I said, my daughter's 10. I cannot mm-hmm. imagine a class full of nine and 10 year olds, what they would feel, how they would process that, what they would yeah. be able to do. But also it's reflected across many schools. Yeah. You know, you, you share some statistics in the book about, and I'm forgetting the number now, but overwhelmingly teachers in America are white. It's like 82, 84 Something really yeah. high. And yeah. overwhelming, I think more than 50% of students are black and brown. Mm-hmm. You know, I live in Qatar. My kids go to a British school. Yeah. The student body, and I write about this in the book, the student body is extremely multiracial. It was when I was there. It's the same school I went to. Extremely multiracial. White people were definitely the minority yeah. <laughs> in that school. But the teachers are the majority. The admin staff, the leadership staff, mm-hmm. they are the majority. There are now a handful, and I say on one hand, number of teachers of color. There's one black woman, one black man. I haven't seen the black man because he's in a different campus and a few different Asian teachers. But, you know, I try to speak to them about the fact that uh, it's really important for all of our kids to see the teachers and the leadership in the school reflective of what they look like because they're going to go out into the world and they're going to think that people who look white are the people who should be in positions of authority and not themselves. Yeah. Right? So tell us a little bit about that story with the boy and how the current structures that exist in schools across America, schools such as my kids' schools, what does that create for kids of color and white kids, actually? What does that create in the consciousness? Yeah. I mean, like, immediately, like, what comes to mind is, like, we start believing that it's only white folks who can like guide us and take care of us and lead us and that all of like our black folks and people of the global majority, like we can't trust them or believe them. And that just like really messes (laughs) up with your psyche and who you are going to be. I think of like Malcolm X who told his teacher he wanted to be a lawyer and his teacher was like, no. And how that kind of like led him into his path. Wow that got him in jail because yeah. and he, he goes back to that. And, and this is what teachers do to it. They have the power to like mm. really support and honor you. And they also have the power to like take away anything you believe in. And when they are operating in savior mode or they're just operating out of their own bias and prejudice, like they are not caring. Like my third grade teacher did not care about us. I don't even know why she was teaching. Right. Yeah. Tell us, tell us that story. Um, It was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much she did in their classroom. It was probably like the most beautiful classroom in that school. And I remember just like she and her family lived in a suburb that was like very white. And she would constantly tell us about the like fun field trips her her children went on or the author visits. Like the next day she brought in the book, My Teacher is an Alien by Bruce Koval. And she was like, Bruce Koval visited my child's school. So I'm going to read this book to you. And we were like, okay. And uh, there are just many different things. You know, I remember one of the boys who sat next to me, he was a Latinx boy and like he had to go to the bathroom and kept asking her and, and she denied him until he had an accident. And it was mm-hmm. a third grade, like third mm-hmm. graders don't typically have accidents. Right. And, you know, instead of having empathy, she ended up shaming him, which was just like, not nah, okay. Just thinking about, you know, like 
I never drank water afterwards. Like I would get headaches because wow. I was dehydrated, but I didn't want to. You didn't want to be in that position, right? Yeah. Right. And right. Then I'm sure like many of my other classmates were feeling the same way. And so I remember in the book, I talk about like there was a time she was like writing in the chalkboard, spelling words or continents. And my friend and I would like take turns correcting her because she made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> and he's a darker a black boy and and then there was me and like he and I were in we were together in first grade second grade we were like best buddies we'd always been together and then there was one day like he corrected I think it was the word I think she spelled Asia with three A's and he corrected her and she just yelled and it was like what she called him a black African ape and that like wow everything was like after that I remember like physically or like mentally building a brick wall around my desk, like pretending I had a brick wall so I didn't have to like deal with her. And I went home and like talked to my mom about it. But then like our teacher was still there and like we didn't know what else to do. To do. We talked to the principal. He still had to be in the class with her. She's grading him. She never apologized. And I just think of like, to me, like that is like one of the worst of the worst. And it's not the worst of the worst. So there are teachers no. who are kicking children out and calling police on their students. I once interviewed somebody to work at our school and the question was like, what was the hardest thing you had to do? And she said, I had to call the police on a kid three times. And I was like, but you didn't have to. Right. <laughs> you don't ever have to call the police no. on a kid. Wow. Like, but it's that like mentality, like I have to do this. Right. Like, and, and you talk about it in your book, like anti-blackness and children. Yeah. Like for children, they're children and we're like treating them like they're grown, scary monsters. And they're like beautiful, loving little children. Right. We're looking to school and the system to be educated. Like right. that's our right. Like, right. although in the United States, we don't have the same rights because we've not signed the UN declaration for right. Right. children's rights, but ideally we would have the right to an education, but we don't get that. And the darker your skin is, right. the country doesn't really. As a mother of a son, to yeah. hear that is really, really hard. You know, there's nothing... Mm-hmm that we wouldn't do for our children. Yeah. And to be able to to try to survive as black people in the mouth of white supremacy mm. is so hard. And I often think about some of the survival strategies that my mom who mainly raised us a lot when we were young cuz my father worked at sea, some of the survival strategies that she had to teach us and had to sort of enforce just yeah. so that we could grow up and be the best so that yeah. white supremacy wouldn't define us in these awful yeah. ways, but that ultimately end up doing white supremacy's job for them anyway. Yeah. It's really, really hard. And I, I cannot imagine how hard it was for him to have to come back into that space every single day after being called an animal. I know. In front yeah. of his friends and for you as the other light-skinned, but still black biracial child in the class, right, who was also often challenging her, having to also be in that space and really, really powerless. And I can imagine that there are white people, people of white privilege listening to this and thinking, but I would never do that. I would never do that. I'm sure she 
didn't think she would either. (laughs) I don't think she came to school being like, this is what I'm going to do today. Right, right. You don't have to call a child that to dehumanize Mm -hmm. them either. Mm -hmm. There are ways of treating. I mean, I remember growing up and just, I grew up in a mainly predominantly white school. There were not children Mm -hmm. who looked like me. I was never mistreated by my teachers, but I always got the sense that if there was something going on, I wasn't going to get picked for it. Yeah. Or I just had to make myself just small and likable as much as possible because I, I just didn't feel like I could fully be myself in that space. I felt like if I was fully myself, that that would be a bad thing. And so there's all of these ways that teachers in particular, because that's what we're talking about here, who are white, don't realize the power that they have in these spaces, don't realize the harm that they're causing. Whether that harm is through active harm, like what that teacher did, or that way of showing up that's very white saviorist. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that way. So we had a second grade teacher who like, I think very fondly of, she was also a white woman. And she, when students were having a rough day, she would have them sit next to her at her desk or like under her desk. Her idea was like, if I keep them closer, and this is my like thinking as a teacher too, like you keep the kids who need extra support and love closer. Closer. And you don't push them away with your words or physically out the door. Right. And so it was also like being in that third grade class was such a shock from a teacher who like, she actively showed us she loved us in different ways. And I'm sure it was some saviorism there too. And I I don't think that third grade teacher lasted at that school for very long. (laughs) But my guess is she left because she chose to leave and not because somebody was like, it's time for you. Right, right, right. Ooh, it's heavy. I know. I know. <laughs> it's heavy, but for the white kids in classes such as those or in situations where they see something happening and you're equipping them in this book with an understanding of how to th- think critically of under- to be able to uh, see a situation and understand what's going on, you include like this list of things that they can do. As children, as young people, if they see something happening, there are things that you can do. You can call an adult, you can call this, you can video them on your phone. You can, you can speak to the adult that's next to you and say, I thought that was really amazing that you didn't just stop it at, here's some information that you can learn that will help you. You took it to, here's how you can actually actively be anti-racist. Why was that important for you to add? I'm really glad that you did. (laughs) Thank you. So, well, I think there's so many times like we say to kids like, oh, you can do this. And they're like, what is it that I can do? And like younger folks think more concretely. Mm. And so to be able to have a list that you can almost like start from before you build. And adults may need this too, like a starting point. And I think with my own children too, like, you know, if they were in that third grade class, I would want my son to like stand up and be like, that's not okay. But what he would do as an observer is he would notice everything that was happening and how everyone was feeling. And he would come home and talk to me or he would talk to another trusted teacher. Right. My hope is that like each child will take, each student, each person who reads it will take one of those and start their toolbox with that and then be able to grow from there. Yeah. I love that you went onto the toolbox because I wanted to read (laughs) 
something from one of the activities in your book, and this is on page 97, which is under the chapter on choosing your path and take action. So choosing my path, I think it's chapter 11. And it's the second activity. And you say, imagine you have an anti-racist toolbox that you carry around with you. What's in it and why? Here are some of the things I have in mind. A notebook and a pen, so I can write down observations, thoughts, etc. Photographs of my family and friends to help ground me and keep me connected with those who I trust and love. Chocolate and almonds for quick energy. (laughs) A reusable water bottle because I need to stay hydrated. Tiger balm is in there. When I get stressed, the tension builds in my shoulders and neck. It hurts. The tiger balm helps to ease that pain. I always have a book or two to read and make sure they're by Black, Indigenous, people of color, authors, and folks living outside the imaginary box. Define for us what that is in just a moment. Information about my rights in English and Spanish. And my phone charged so I can easily (laughs) connect with others and take photos and videos. I love this so much. Um, and, And the reason why I loved it is because you know, I talk about Me and White Supremacy being this book that you carry, this tool you carry in your your backpack, your anti-racist backpack. And I, I often think of Peggy Mac- McIntosh's invisible knapsack, right? And I say, yeah. you, know, you have this knapsack, you're carrying around with all these privileges, right? So yeah. you need to put something else in there, right? That is going to actually help yeah. you be in the practice of anti-racism. But what I love is that you help them to understand this is lifelong work and therefore it has to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. Right. So we've got the chocolate, the almonds, right? We've got the, the yeah. water bottle. We've got the tiger bomb because we, this is not a short yeah. walk we're going on. Yeah. And then we're you just have to like move through the pain right, sometimes. Right, right, right. I really love that you included that. What do you want people to take away from it, both children and adults? So those are like all things that I walk around with in my backpack every day. Walk around with, uh-huh. <laughs> and I like I actually miss walking around in my backpack right now. Yeah, and I want everybody to be able to see like those things that they can use to be able to sustain themselves and to think of just like the photographs of my family. You know, like we can on our phone too, but having like a physical picture in my wallet, have like a little one of my dad and my sister and I, when we were like babies and then like, mm. this is who I'm doing. So that reminder too, as, as adults and as children, like who we're doing this work for. And then note, like I'm always right. I have so many different notebooks and pens, like writing things down. But my hope is like people will build this like toolkit because this is like work that feels very abstract, but it's so concrete. That's and, right need to have things that we can like physically do to stay connected to the work, whether it's writing or drawing, carrying around a full water bottle (laughs) and that by the end of the day, it should be empty because if it's not, you're going to have a headache, but really wanting those things. And my son, like in his backpack for school, like he has like tissues and a snack and, you know, like band-aids and some like ointment in case he or somebody falls down and they can't get to the nurse and he has, yeah. you know, like the little buttons from the book of Aurelius drawings. He's got pins and buttons all over it, but he has extra so he can come to people too. And <laughs> just thinking yeah. of like kids love, like they yeah. have things all the time. And if they can like have something to share or if they can start building that, they can stay connected. And this is, it creates an entirely different way of seeing yourself as you move through the world and understanding that 
first the understanding that if you're white, you have white privilege, right? That's mm-hmm. so you're in car- you're already carrying something around, but yeah. that you can actually then, as you begin to move into this practice, really begin to look at what is in my, what do I choose to be in there that yeah. can help empower me, support me, educate me, inform me, ground me, right? All yeah. of these things so yeah. that I can be in this in this life long work. And like you said, it can feel, especially, you know, my work is very much about like self-reflect, right? Like, and it can start to feel really abstract, right? Not abstract because racism, being on the receiving end of racism is very real, Mm -hmm. very concrete, it's very visceral. And it's so important for people who have that privilege to understand it. You have to engage with it in this very visceral way as well. Explain to us about the imaginary box that you have in the book. So the imaginary box is really like, it's what's considered normal, the dominant culture. It's And you know, like there's always that expression like, oh, are you a square peg trying to fit in a round hole? Right. Or you have to think outside the box. Right, right, right. And it's one of those things, you know, there's this little box. It's very small, but it contains all of these things that we're supposed to aspire to or And that tiny box holds like everything, holds all the resources, controls all the policies. And once you like get out of the box, it's like all of us. And it's like beautiful (laughs) and it's like creative. And there's so much life, but this like imaginary box, like it's so oppressive. And there's an educator who's using it and he's like, can you explain the box? And so I like drew a picture for him. Yeah. We talked about what would go inside and it's a like work that came from an anti-racism workshop uh, with Crossroads Anti-Racism. I uh, think they do a lot of work around the, the Borderlands model from Gloria Anzaldúa's Borderlands La Frontera. Mm. And um, it's also like that work that I do with students, like they're so concrete. So you're like, hey, let's draw this box. And like, when you watch TV, what do you see all the time? Mm. Or like when you're looking at books in your public library, who's represented? And they like, they can name it so easily. Yeah. I found it really interesting, actually, that you you use the imaginary box. Because I often describe, I always say like the world of the dominant culture is designed for a very specific kind of person who fits into this box. And in this mm-hmm. box is white male, cisgendered, yeah. right? Middle to upper yep. class, thin, yep. right? He heterosexual, like he's in that box. Yeah. And, so small. Right? It's so tiny. That's who the world is. The, yeah. the world is designed for that person to thrive. The person yeah. who fits in that box, this world is designed for them to thrive. And the less things, the less identities you have in that box the more this world is not designed for you to thrive, yeah. right? So we yeah. move outside of that. So I found that really interesting because I really identified with that. But I love that then you then yeah. ask questions. You get them to think about, like you said, like when you watch a TV show or a movie, what do you see? Who's the protagonist, yeah. right? Who's the stories about in a book? Yeah. Who's being featured? And things of that nature to really help them see the box is not, again, yeah. this abstract idea. Yeah. It's there everywhere. Yeah. 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 The question I love to ask students is like, at school, who's making all of the rules? Yeah. Who's in charge? Who's on the board? Let's look yeah. at their pictures. Right, um, right. And they're like, well, let's talk about that then, because I think one of the things that people who have white privilege want to protect their kids from is the outrage, because I think the outrage then comes with action. 
Mm -hmm. right? You get outraged and, and you feel all kinds of things. I think as people, we want to make sure our kids are happy most of the time, yeah. right? But also that it comes with this that has to be channeled into something. Yeah. And that yeah. will buck against the system, right? Yeah. What do you want to say to, to those people about <laughs> allowing their children to feel the grief, the rage, the outrage, like all of those things as they become more awake? Yeah. And we have to like be able to give our kids that agency to make change. One of my favorite things I did with my students a couple of years ago was we were talking about economic justice and we were brought in the story of the Black Panther Party and their 10 point program. And I was like, so what would your, what would your program look like for wow. economic justice in our school? Yeah. And this was after like doing, like looking at statistics, um, talking about race and gender and, you know, how like white men get paid this and indigenous women get paid that. And like so that they have a, So they have context. They have an understanding yes. of the facts. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Right. Like the context is so important, but that like outrage is because they're they're learning the truth. Yeah. And we can give them agency by giving them tools, providing them with opportunities. So what we did was they came up with their nine-point program for economic justice within our community. And one of them was like, everybody gets a stuffy, you know, like they yeah. <laughs> like so cute. And I was like, okay, what do you want to do with this? And they're like, we want to meet with the board. And I was like, wow. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so I invited board members and community wow. members to hear their voices. Yeah. And then from there, like as adults, you're like, okay, these kids are going to hold me accountable. They're holding me accountable. <laughs> right. They were very clear. They understand yeah. the facts. This is what yeah. they want. Right. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, that's and so like, amazing. Nobody was hurt in the process. That's right. The adults learned more. The children right. had agency. Things started to like improve, you know, like yeah. nothing bad happened, happened because their children were empowered. Mm. So. And that's such a key learning. Thank you for sharing that that story because I think yeah, it's huge. I think we're we're often again as adults so attached to the power structures, so attached to our identities and the way things are that the idea that those who we see as less powerful, in this case the children, right, right. would yeah. be able to tell the adults actually this is what needs from what we're observing, from yeah. the context we understand, yeah. this is what we want to see happen, and yeah. we're going to hold you accountable to this. Yeah, yeah, huge, huge. And it, like as kids, we adults are making the we're trying to figure out what they need, and they they get to tell us. Yeah, we should always be. Listening. Yeah, I love like the Black Panther Party is such a great. Like knowing the history is such a great way of bringing in, like you can talk about intersectionality, economic yes. justice, yes. Like racial equity, it's yeah. solidarity work. I love bringing their work into the lives of my white students. Yes, <laughs> yeah. You know, and again, because I've said this a million times now, this book is really, it is for everybody of all ages. I really appreciate in you sharing all of these different stories, both historical and present day is giving people context and understanding so that they can understand what the real truth is versus what we are being taught is the truth. You know, one of the things you talk about is how, so in America, in North America, how the stories of what America was before Christopher Columbus arrived, right? There's the 
dominant yeah. culture story, right? And then there's the yeah. actual reality of what it was. Yeah. And undoing that when you've been taught from a very young age, Christopher Columbus discovered America, and you're not just taught it, the entire world is taught that. We were taught yeah. that in the UK, right? <laughs> the, yeah. whole, the whole world is taught yeah. this. So reclaiming history, retelling it in its from its roots is yeah. so important in being able to, like we said, decenter whiteness, um, yeah. decentering a white narrative, and then giving people tools to be able to say, oh, from, from that understanding of what the truth is, this right. is what should be happening. Right. Yeah. Wow, oh, Tiffany, you're amazing. You're so, so are amazing. You. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for this incredible oh, book. I really, I said it today on Instagram, everybody needs to buy this book. Everybody, everybody. I do have our last question that I ask every guest, but I think it would be remiss for me not to ask this for our educators who are listening to this conversation. Mm-hmm. Are there any tools that you have or things that you can direct them to to how to bring work of this nature into their schools? Yeah. So I always encourage folks to start with themselves first. And so this book is like the tool that it's I always me ask. And white supremacy. Thank me you. And white supremacy. <laughs> and it is like I've been working with educators in Texas and they did your work when it was the workbook and the way they're able to make the leap in trust that the changes we're making in the classroom for black and brown students are going to benefit everybody. Like they're doing it. And it's so exciting how they're able to to jump into because they've done all that internal work. Yeah. And the other book is anti-bias education for young children and ourselves. And it's for young kids, but I always think what works for our youngest will work for our oldest students. It like also reminds us to go back to their like humanity as like young people. So those are like the the books. And then I have a curriculum that every now and then I do a a curriculum training that is like the framework of the anti-racist history work that I've done with my students. And there are about 300 educators in the world who have done the training and downloaded it. And then there's a a couple of schools that are using it as their anti-bias, anti-racist curriculum, which is awesome. Um, And where can they find that? How can they they get um, that? There, I usually post on social media or Patreon, like a workshop is coming up. And this, the end of this month, I'm recording a training just so people can access it whenever they need to. Amazing. Um, and yeah. then once they're done, the training, because the training is like me explaining how I've used it and it's not a script. So if you download it, you're going to look at it and be like, what is this? Right, right. It has to come from you. And so the after. And that's why that inner work first is so important, right? Yep. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Well, we'll make sure to link to everything and thank you. Oh, wait. Oh, there's one more book. Okay. Too. Sorry. It's my favorite. Letters to Marsha by Enid Lee. Okay. Um, And it's out of print, but you can still find it. And it's really like thin, Mm -hmm. but it's a teacher's guide to anti-racist education. And it's it's so beautiful. And everyone should should support Enid Lee's work because she's amazing. Amazing. Her other book is uh, Beyond Heroes and Holidays. It was edited with Teaching for Tolerance, I think. Mm. Or teaching for change. I can't remember which one, but it's so filled with information. It's 
Amazing. So there are resources, there are things that people write, and it's that willingness to take it on and to say, this is my responsibility that I can't necessarily wait for the school to tell me we need to do it. Yeah, they're not going to. They're not going to, right? We talk about institutional change and how it has to come from the individuals. Teachers who are listening, white teachers, teachers who have white privilege, please take this on as your responsibility. Curate your education and make it part of your work to say, how yeah. can I interrupt, as you yeah. said earlier, right? I've got yeah. interrupt whiteness and how can I, in this school, right, create a whole different legacy. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And, and really teachers have more power than admin do. Like they're building mm. relationships with students and families and that's power right there. And yeah. um, I think a lot of teachers are waiting for admin in the administration and the system to tell them what to do. Right. But just, you do it in your classroom. Do it. Right. That's um, ah, amazing. Yeah. All right, Tiffany, our final question. What does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? Oh, it means a lot of things. I think right now, and I would answer it differently every day. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, but for me, it means to learn from the past and to extend that knowledge into the future. So to share that with my own children in hopes that they'll share that with their children. Yeah. So the truth is something that becomes our always history. Yeah. And it means that to be a good ancestor also means to be like honest and truthful, even when it feels uncomfortable, because there's always discomfort before we grow. Yeah. And so if I can lean into that discomfort and to acknowledge it and work through it and then sh- name it and share it, mm. then I can be a better ancestor for my own children and for everyone. Mm. That's beautiful. Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. Oh, I appreciate you. And like, if you need help with your book, let me know. <laughs> Thank you. You'll be getting a e- desperate email from me soon. <laughs> I'm like itching to write it into the curriculum. Like now that uh, stamped is out too from Jason that's right, and Kendi, that's right. I'm like, all right, good. Now we that's have all right. these tools. We're going to be like, here's this stack of tools for you. Please. You yeah. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. This is Leila Saad, and you've been listening to Good Ancestor Podcast. I hope this episode has helped you find deeper answers on what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to have you join the Good Ancestor podcast family over on Patreon, where subscribers get early access to new episodes, patron-only content and discussions, and special bonuses. Join us now at patreon.com forward slash good ancestor podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being a good ancestor.